Welcome to Mental Health in Minnesota, produced by NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the lives of children and adults with mental illnesses and their families. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namihelps.org. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening again. This is Brian Jost. In this episode, we have another personal story, part of the 40th anniversary celebration for NAMI Minnesota. Today we have Nate Cannon, a NAMI Minnesota volunteer, with us to talk about his experience with NAMI Minnesota. And I'd like to start off, Nate, with you just telling listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with NAMI in the first place. And I know a little bit of it, but but let's see what you have to say. Yeah, uh, well, I'm... Originally from Iowa, but have been living here in the Twin Cities since 2001 and started working on my first book in 2007 and started taking some writing classes at a place called The Loft in downtown Minneapolis where I met uh, met you, Brian. Yep, yep. And when was that? 2000... 2007 or 2008. Yeah, okay. Too. Wow. Yeah. So at that point, you were talking for the Inner Own Voice program and kind of spoke about NAMI and what it did for you. And I, yeah, I was really interested. it must have been 2009 now that I think about it. Yeah. 2009? Yeah, that that's way? when I started volunteering hmm. for NAMI okay. in general. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm yep. off on that. So I thought it was 2007, 2008. But yeah, so around that time, that was when I was working on my first book. And then you and I met, and I was just really impressed with what you had to say about NAMI and in the program. The Inner Own Voice program sounded really appealing to me, having shared my story a bit when I was in college and uh, thought that that was something that I wanted to kind of explore further. So when the opportunity came about, I jumped right on it and really kind of went in full steam. So. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing that that was about seven years ago Yeah, when we met. Yeah, and I definitely just remember your your story and, and how you were working on your memoir and thinking definitely that in our own voice would be great for you. And yeah, so interesting how that has worked out. Yes. Um, the world works in mysterious ways. Yeah, seems. yeah. So now if I'm remembering right, maybe it was around 2012 when you finally were able to get a training spot in Inner Own Voice? Does that sound yeah, right? Yeah, it was uh, 2012 and, that I started the, the training for Inner Own Voice, and a lot had changed between those those years uh, through the course of writing that first book. A lot, a lot of closure came to me for a lot of the things that I went through with some of my adolescent mental health struggles, including the chemical dependency that was kind of masking some of that. And I was able to kind of process through some of my first suicide attempt from when I was 17 through the writing of that first book. But writing that book was also kind of what made me more aware that I had been confusing my sexual orientation with my gender identity. So it was after that book came out that uh, I had, unfortunately, a second suicide attempt that nearly took me my life and put me in a coma. My partner of 10 years then left the relationship, and in early 2012, I, I really had to pick myself back up by the bootstraps and kind of rebuild my life. So mm -hmm. I was Jennifer then when mm -hmm. we met, and am now legally, hormonally, physically male, and am Nathan. A lot of changes over the years. A lot, right? yes. Right? <laughs> Definitely. Um, so we've been mentioning in our own voice, we should say 
what that is for our listeners. Um, so in our own voice, being one of NAMI's signature programs where people who are living with mental illnesses and living in recovery go out and tell their personal stories in public to a bunch of different audience types. And and uh, so other than speaking directly in that program, you've also done a couple other, um, some speaking for NAMI Minnesota. Was it the, you spoke at the NAMI Walks and our state conference, right? Correct. Yes. I, I've been just flattered with the feedback that I've gotten from NAMI and, and the uh, support that I've been given. They, in 2015, was named the Program Volunteer of the Year and then served on the keynote panel there for the state conference. And this year in 2016, served as one of the speakers for the walk, which was quite an honor. Absolutely. And there's been a few other panels that I've served on as well at the request of uh, of program leaders. And I've also done some speaking with Kay King over at uh, a certain treatment center that works sure. for LGBT adults that have both mental health and chemical dependency challenges. Yeah, I know Kay, Kay has been very appreciative of your help doing that. Backing up to the, the keynote panel at the conference that you were on, what do you remember about that? What was your feeling going into that? And and did you feel any different while you were in the middle of, of the panel? Just what was that experience being up there? Well, it was quite an honor to be on the keynote at a state conference, certainly. And I think the preparation that went into it, it was kind of nice because we were able to just kind of get a sense from the moderator about what kind of questions were going to be posed to us. But that gave me a little bit of time to kind of think about who was in the audience as well and, and what kind of response I might might be most appropriate for them, whether they're consumers or providers or just legislators and that kind of thing. So trying to be able to respond in a way that, that kind of meets all those different folks that do come to the NAMI conferences, that come to our talks, to make sure that we're reaching kind of every angle, I think was really stood out for me. I think it also stood out to me to just how interactive that process was of being on the panel, the, the importance of sharing those personal stories and how impactful that can be for, for the audience members. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think it really, really resonated with them. That's cool. Uh, it's okay if your answer is no, but did you feel like you learned anything new about NAMI by being at that conference? Any kind of surprises about what NAMI's doing or maybe what they've become? I was impressed with the number of folks there that support NAMI, the different organizations that are large organizations in and of themselves, various mental health organizations and groups that uh, that run different group homes and facilities that had, had booths there that are behind NAMI and behind NAMI's mission. So it really seems that they're really championing this uh, this movement towards eliminating the stigma of mental health. And I just I have tremendous respect for the work that they're doing. And it seems that many of the organizations that serve, serve folks with mental health challenges feel the same way. That's cool. It's definitely becoming more known. NAMI is becoming more and more known. Um, we mentioned you mentioned your book. What's the title of the book? Uh, the first book is titled "Running on a Mind Rewired," which is essentially it came straight from my neurologist's mouth when he told me that I had rewired my brain via chemical dependency and head injuries. Uh, the second book that is nearly finished now, and that I'm very excited about, I'm working under the title of "Still Breathing." 
So that will be more about my gender reassignment and the second suicide attempt that I had in 2011 that put me in the coma and how I've subsequently rebuilt my life, uh, what it means to be living as a transgender person with a disability, with mental health and physical health challenges. Yeah, that's incredible that you've been able to complete your first book and that you're getting close on your second. Yeah, it's, it's been kind of surreal, actually. <laughs> good for you. Thank you. Definitely. Um, what has it meant for you personally to have been involved in the work of NAMI, and and how has how has your involvement impacted your own life? I don't know that I would still be breathing were it not for NAMI. Uh, the support that that you offered me, Brian, specifically, was very very helpful for me, and just getting kind of connected to. The organization and the group of peers that I've developed through the Inner Own Voice program, a lot of those folks have become very good friends. Uh, resources that I can turn to when I know that I'm struggling with my mental health and mm -hmm. I feel in the same way that they can turn to me. And that's, that's created a, a network of peers and support that I didn't have before. People who <clears throat> I know will accept me for, you know, despite a, a diagnosis or not see me as a label. And, and that's really, really been empowering to, to find a community of people that I can connect with. That's I think awesome. it's absolutely helped my life in a lot of different ways. And one of those ways, too, is by, by paying it forward. That really is one of my life philosophies. And having been diagnosed first with depression when I was 12 and not getting the correct diagnosis of bipolar until I was 32, that was a long time to be living with the wrong diagnosis yeah. and a long time to be living with mental health symptoms that weren't really understood. So to, to have a program where I finally feel like I have a voice is really, really important for me. And I think that that's, uh, it's very emotionally cathartic and it's also important to me to feel like I'm actually able to now kind of put the shoe on the other foot and help educate others who may not understand the complexities of, of mental illness and, and also help others get through their darker days, much the way I looked up to others in their stories when I was going through my own. Mm. So I'm curious, and, and I'm genuinely curious, about what you would say the difference is between the speaking you've done with the Inner Own Voice program, you know, sticking to that, NAMI in her own voice format compared to some of the other speaking you've done on your own. And, and I know a, a little bit that you get more into your experience of, of gender and identity and, and uh, which is something that I know can be in the inner own voice format a little bit, but it's never really the focus. Mm -hmm. And, and just in terms of the relation to mental illnesses and, Tell me a little bit more about what you do when you're out there on your own. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that the inner own voice format has really given me kind of a nice framework to kind of build a story around. And regardless of whether that, that central piece is the mental health or the physical health, uh, I live with a neurological disorder called dystonia, which is a first cousin to Parkinson's disease. And it's very painful and uncomfortable and not very well known. So there might be times when if I'm speaking to nurses, I may emphasize more of that medical side of things. Uh, <clears throat> but I think that there's just been a nice framework that the IOV program gives me that I, I can then kind of work that same 
kind of process. It's almost like the stages of grief in that we kind of go through those dark days and we we find a place where we can maybe come to an acceptance and we move forward with our treatment. We find those coping skills and, and eventually we hope to get to those successes and those hopes and those dreams. So that that format, I think, is an, just an incredible format for how any of us would go about living our lives or go through mm-hmm. an experience and try and recover from it. So that, that format has actually helped me in kind of creating a skeleton framework that I've been able to kind of use in, in other talks to then discuss... Uh, my neurological illness, or just specifically discuss uh, my transgender identity. I will say that uh, the mental health, I think I always kind of see as being at the core of all of that, that the it's often my mental health that ends up struggling when my physical health isn't doing well. And if I'm having struggles in terms of maintaining my sobriety or if I'm having urges to use, it's often intertwined with my mental health. So there's a lot of areas there that just get very complicated and mixed together. <clears throat> so I think it's really important that uh, that that framework still kind of be there with the mental health at kind of the core. Mm-hmm. That, that does make sense. Right. Everything's still related. And yeah, yeah, it does make sense. Nate, tell me about your the work that you're doing right now and and how mental illness plays a part in, in what you see in your work. Yeah, <clears throat> my uh, my work is a bit complicated. Uh, I am currently serving as an Alzheimer's care director, which is an umbrella term, I guess. It, it's more dementia care, uh, but about 80% of dementia cases are Alzheimer's-based. The unit that I, I direct, though, I'd say about 85% of my residents have actually had mental health diagnoses prior to the onset of their dementia. I did work in mental health and chemical dependency, both in long-term care for adolescents for a bit, and then with LGBT adults, to now see folks who are kind of at the end of their life and who have lived with some of these symptoms since they were very young is very eye-opening. But it's been really interesting, too, to see how the brain interacts with the mental illness and the dementia and how they kind of play off of each other. And that how sometimes with different varieties of dementia, we do see symptoms such as hallucinations within Lewy body dementia, perhaps of children and animals that can look a lot like mental illness. And so as to try and tease those apart and figure out which is actually a symptom of mental illness versus a symptom of the progression of the dementia is a real challenge. But uh, that's something that I think is really important. I love working with the with folks with with dementia. I think it's a wonderful population and underserved population, particularly the the percentage of the population that lives with those other diagnoses. And the reason being that, unfortunately, at this time, if there is a mental health diagnosis, if there is a history of a brain injury, of chemical dependency treatment, often those folks don't have a whole lot of choice in where they end up going in terms of an assisted living facility or a memory care facility. It's often that they end up being rejected by places of their choosing. So we end up having kind of units that kind of cater to more behavioral expressions, as it were. And in that case, it's very important that we have a good insight into both not only the illness of dementia, but also mental illness as well, and to know how that mental illness might be interacting with the dementia and vice versa. Hmm. And then I think you're probably familiar with, because you mentioned K-King, are you familiar with a little bit of 
her work with the older adult programming that Nami does? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you see do you see room for more of that to be happening? Absolutely. Uh, I think that there's definitely a lot of work that that can be done to help older adults who are living with mental illness. It's again, it's just a population that has been kind of underserved. And in my experience as well, a lot of these folks, they may be afraid to share some of their mental health symptoms because when they were younger, if they were to share that they were struggling with these thoughts, they would automatically be institutionalized potentially for sure. life. So now we're in a much different day and age where it's a little, a little more okay to be uh, transparent about some of those struggles. But that particular generation is, is still very, seems to be pretty closed off about wanting to share that, perhaps rooted out of fear of what, what may end up happening if they are truthful about the symptoms that they're experiencing. Right, that makes so, sense. I think as we get older, though, there's a a lot more isolation that ends up happening. You lose a lot of your peers, your friends start pass, passing away. And suddenly everything starts to change. You can't do the things that you used to do. And, and I can I can relate to that piece living with a progressive neurological disorder myself that was diagnosed at 26. Is suddenly when I couldn't do the things that my peers were able to do or that I had been able to previously do, that really amplified my mental health symptoms. But it was really hard for me to accept that that was happening. So then I'd put my walls up and want to keep people at a distance and then I'd isolate more and it kind of feeds on itself. So I see that same thing with, with older adults as well. Hmm. Wow. Thank you. Let's touch on one more question here. I'm curious what your hopes are for the future of NAMI. Is there anything specifically that Maybe you wish you would have had more for yourself, or is there a need that maybe isn't being met? Anything that anything uh, come well, to mind? I'm very excited about uh, that. Sue had talked to me about getting into some some suicide prevention trainings. I have been certified in in other areas for nonviolent crisis uh, de-escalation. And I've had a lot of trainings just through my work for, for suicide prevention. However, it is a bit different when you're the person on stage who's sharing your, your story. And I have often left those talks and then gotten emails from folks who have heard me speak, who may have read my book, who may be in a crisis. And to, to know how to respond to that, both from a peer perspective, but also in an informed perspective that's going to help make sure that, they, that they're safe and that they feel supported without uh, at the expenditure of, of jeopardizing my own self-care, that's, that's a real balance. So finding that has been kind of a challenge, but I think it's also something that I'm making progress on. Yeah, sure. And how about, is there anything that you wish NAMI would do more of? I will say that I do think that it's phenomenal that NAMI has some programming that's geared towards the LGBT community, and I think that that's going to be exceptionally important as we go forward. It's just kind of a rocky climate right now, and I think that there's a lot of folks that are in the LGBT community who are having a lot of uh, increase in psychiatric symptoms, and I know that from my, my friends and community that a lot of folks are struggling right now. And that may be a consequence of the political climate. It may just be the type of year, a combination of the two. But there's there seems to be a need right now, I think, for some sensitivity in that area and for folks in that community to know that, that they're supported. 
particularly within the trans community, and I will say that because uh, gender dysphoria continues to be a diagnosis within the DSM-5, and that often what I've experienced being in the trans community are that we have to put up this front that everything's fine and we're doing great and we're emotionally stable, so therefore we should be able to go forward with a transition or else the providers may stop that. And that, that is an unfortunate truth that you almost have to kind of put on this mask of everything's fine, mm -hmm. and that's not always the case. So you see a lot of times, uh, in my experience anyways, and for some other particularly transgender men who I know, uh, don't really want to admit to any mental health symptoms that are going on for fear that it's all going to kind of be lumped under this gender piece and that that may prevent them from being able to move forward. So there, I think there's a definite need for that. And um, as we mentioned, the, the older generation just kind of being underserved as well. That's a population that we're starting to see more of is, is folks that are coming out who are older that are LGBT, and, and that's a particular population that has really fallen through the cracks mm -hmm. and that tends to be very isolated. So if there's a way that we could kind of work some of those different programs that NAMI has into each other, if that makes sense, to oh, kind of yeah. work some of the older adult programming in with some of the LGBT programming to meet some of these uh, communities within communities that may feel like they've been left out or that don't have a voice. Good ideas, definitely. Uh, well, let's wrap it up here, but tell people how they can get in touch with you and find out more about your books, your website. What do you? What is that again? Yeah, uh, we, my website is runningrewired.com. That's running like the sport, R-E-W-I-R-E-D.com. And you can contact me there if you're interested in linking up for a speaking engagement or have a question. I'm also on Facebook there, Facebook slash running, rewire, running rewired uh, the book is available on Amazon Barnes and Noble Kindle or Nook whatever your flavor is or you can purchase a copy from my website and you'll get a nice autographed copy from me directly cool cool well, I thank am looking forward oh. to the next one coming out by the way it's uh Hopeful for 2017, but I have some, I definitely am, am optimistic about this and its its potential. And I think it has a real great potential to reach a lot of people and to change some lives. Awesome. Well, thanks, Nate, again for all your help with NAMI Minnesota and the Interim Voice Program. And I, I can't believe, sitting down and talking now, I can't believe it's been seven years since yeah. meeting and I know. You know, the experience with Interim Voice. and. All of it, and thanks for sitting down now and having this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Right. NAMI Minnesota champions justice, dignity, and respect for all people affected by mental illnesses. Through education, support, and advocacy, we strive to eliminate the pervasive stigma of mental illnesses, affect positive changes in the mental health system, and increase the public and professional understanding of mental illnesses. NAMI Minnesota vigorously promotes the development of community mental health programs and services, improved access to services, and increased opportunities for recovery. NAMI Minnesota is located at 800 Transfer Road, Suite 31, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55114. Call us at 651-645-2948 or toll-free at 1-888-NAMI-HELPS or email namihelps at namimn.org. NAMI Minnesota's website is namihelps.org. Outside of Minnesota, visit nami.org to find your state NAMI organization.